In today's lecture, we'll examine the influence of the European modernist movement on the United States as it progressed from the prosperous consumerism of the 1920s through the Great Depression in the 1930s and into World War II in the 1940s. It's nice to think that design is driven by aesthetics and good values, and in many ways it is. But in the United States, it is intimately connected to commerce. Design is the oil in the machine of capitalism. Businesses and brands that want to compete in a crowded marketplace have to hire a graphic designer for everything from logos to websites to print ads to those inbox choking e-blasts. Among the many other functions that designers perform, advertising is a critical aspect of the field that businesses can't afford to ignore. The 1920s were a boom time in the United States. Advertising increased dramatically after World War I as consumer demand and the need to sell products grew. This rise in advertising created a period of innovation and new ideas in advertising design. In the 1930s, the focus of design changed dramatically as the United States fell into the Great Depression and an influx of groundbreaking modernist designers fled Europe and the rise of fascism for the safety and freedom of America. Piet Mondrian brought the geometric abstract de Stijl influence with him from the Netherlands. Laszlo Moholy-Nagy and Herbert Bayer promoted the functional pairing of art and machine from the Bauhaus in Germany. And the lavish elegance of French art deco was introduced by Jean Carlou and A.M. Cassandra, who spent two summers in New York. The intersecting qualities of all the European avant-garde movements, constructivism, suprematism, futurism, dada, were represented somehow in this new, unorthodox visual vocabulary. The styles, ideas, and values influenced by the European modernist movement remained the same, but the purpose now was to communicate complex ideas or to promote products to a wider and more diverse audience than ever before. The average American in the midst of the Great Depression didn't need luxury items, expensive cruises, or couture fashion. Unemployment during the Depression was as high as 25%. Franklin Roosevelt initiated a new federal program under the New Deal Agency, the Works Progress Administration, or WPA. Headed by Harry Hopkins, a social worker, the WPA employed millions of Americans. They built dams, bridges, roads, federal buildings. One division, the Federal Art Project, created a program to fund the visual arts. As a relief effort, the Federal Art Project employed designers, illustrators, photographers, sculptors, painters, and kept them off the street. But as a cultural activity, it contributed a significant body of art to American design history. The Federal Art Project introduced modernist graphic design to a wider audience in America through posters. Designers were urged to speak to the masses in the least elitist way possible. Imagery was representational, but not overly realistic. The subject matter ranged from travel posters to local art exhibitions. The program maintained the arts in the United States and began a tradition of public arts projects. 
ideas from the European avant-garde and the Bauhaus began filtering into design with a wave of immigrants from Germany. Many of the WPA designers had been exposed to European modernism, but the Bauhaus approach was geared to speak to a small group of European designers and wasn't really effective in reaching millions of Americans. When Jan Schickold's Elementaire typography reached America, it was not well received in general. Many designers and art directors found it to be ridiculous to the point of typographic anarchy. However, a few designers saw its potential for functional and dynamic design and cautiously incorporated some of the ideas. This spread here employs the clean, bold sans serif and expansive white space of the Bauhaus, adding an abstract element reminiscent of Joost Schmidt's famous exhibition poster there on the left. As art directors gained more power and control over photography and layout choices, more American designers began to seek out and experiment with these novel ideas. WPA designers adopted some of the bold, minimal typefaces and integrated the simple forms and geometric shapes with clear iconography and symbols. A.M. Cassandra's Art Deco gradients softened this constructivist influence in this poster for a graphic arts exhibition with its tall, narrow type, broad curves, and dimensional shading, while the asymmetry and sparing use of visual punctuation lead the eye in a distinctively Bauhaus style. Similar treatment is augmented by the dynamic addition of the machine aesthetic, heavy vertical type, and geometric visual punctuation in this workplace safety poster. Both pieces are brightened by rich greens and blues. Pure colors were easier to reproduce with offset and silkscreen printing and communicated hope and progress, especially effective in the travel posters of the time. In editorial design, many American art directors began incorporating dramatic negative space as well as geometric forms, graphic photography, and experimental typography. This 1938 Harper's Bazaar magazine spread is a dramatic departure from the traditional book-style layouts that most magazines favored. The daringly cropped photograph of a woman, her organic curves traced by the left edge of the column of type, was completely unheard of before. The 1937 cover of PM Magazine, which was a journal geared for art directors and production managers, is a distinctive example of this Americanized interpretation of European modernism. The issue features a cover and 16-page letterpress insert designed by Lester Beale. The Beale cover for PM39 is widely recognized as a singular high point in American graphic design, as a perfect synthesis of constructivist influence and the Bauhaus Neue typography, softened by the 19th century decorative P in the lower left. Lester Beale's poster for the Rural Electrification Administration are a great example of complex messages reduced to geometry and symbols. In 1935, 90% of America's rural areas didn't have electricity, and many of the people living in the poorer parts had little or no education. 
Beale was tasked through the WPA to convince people in these areas to adopt electricity. He used silhouetted photography, icons such as arrows, and radically simplified shapes such as the water faucet. Beale designed posters that left no doubt to the message, even for those who couldn't read a single word. His poster with arrows and the word radio make it clear immediately that electricity will bring radio to your home in red, white, and blue. Born in Brooklyn in 1914, Paul Rand was creative from a very young age. One of his first jobs was laying out product spreads for Apparel Arts, a popular men's fashion magazine that was owned by Esquire. Rand took the modernist concepts and applied them with a lighter touch. His cover here for Apparel Arts magazine in 1939 is clearly influenced by Maholi Naj's experimental typography at the Bauhaus. Rand, however, lightens the tone with a loose engraving of a palm tree, echoing the shape of the boat propeller. The shot of green on the cover adds weight to the smaller image, which enhances the contrast, adds texture, and balances the more dominant photographic element. In this catalog for design students at the 1939 World's Fair, Rand uses the simple geometry of the constructivists, but adds just a touch of humor, referring to the fair's famous landmarks, the Trilon and Perisphere, with basic geometric solids. Joseph Binder's poster for the 1939 World's Fair exaggerates the scale of the fairground's distinctive monuments to symbolize the emergence of America as a dominant force going into the Second World War. The asymmetrical layout expresses energy and dynamism by rotating the subject at a slight angle and using dramatic lighting. The series of repeating airplane shapes zoom across a sky that's studded with just a single distinct star. The triangular shape of the trilon, which is the yellow pillar in the center, is inverted in the layers of spotlights. The perisphere's circle then creates a continuous path around the shapes, giving the illusion of depth. The city skyline, almost an afterthought, balances the typography, which serves as a grounding element. Now, while the poster designs of the 20s and 30s left a lasting imprint on graphic design, in the late 30s, as the country sank further into the Depression, magazines were emerging as the dominant form of communication. Radio existed, but magazine advertising was the best way to promote visually to a wide audience. Joseph Binder's 1937 cover for Fortune magazine mimics the expressionist woodcut of a cathedral topped by stars that Lionel Feininger designed for Gropius's manifesto, which we saw in our last lecture on the Bauhaus. It utilizes the geometry of the Bauhaus style the drama of French poster design in the Art Deco style, and the dynamic forms of constructivism, all to communicate a towering tribute to an urban capitalist utopia. In the days when American graphic design seemed like the province of European immigrants, the men were joined by a young woman born in Austria. Sippy Pinellis was one of the first women in the field to rise to prominence. Her graphic design career began 
when she was installed by Condé Nast himself in the office of Russian-born and French-educated designer M.F. Aga, who was at that time the art director for Condé Nast publications Vogue, Vanity Fair, and House and Garden. It had taken her a year of portfolio reviews to land the position. As was typical of the attitude of the times, the pattern had usually been a positive reaction to her work, followed by an inevitable letdown when a woman showed up for the interview. Working with Aga on the design of Vogue and Vanity Fair through the 1930s and early 40s, Pinellas learned editorial design and later art direction from one of the masters of the era. She took ideas from constructivism and softened them to create a distinctive look for magazines like Vogue and Glamour, where she became the first autonomous woman art director of a mass-market American publication. After experimenting on Glamour, she later art-directed and put her distinctive mark on Seventeen and Charm magazines as well. Photography at the Bauhaus, with its unexpected photographic cropping and point of view, influenced many of her choices. Until her death in 1991, Sippy Pinellas continued a design career of almost 60 years through work for Lincoln Center and others and teaching at the Parsons School of Art and Design. Alexei Brodovich spent his formative years as a graphic designer in Europe, reveling in the modernist mix of Dadaism, Constructivism, Futurism, De Steele, and Bauhaus, among others. It was among these influences that he found his unique voice as a designer, which is clear here in the strict geometry, sharp type, and asymmetrical distribution of white space in this early ad for Martini brand vermouth. The architectural lines, contrasts in texture, scale, and line weight, and the photo collage imagery in this Athelia ad call to mind Maholi Naj's photographic experiments combined with Schickold's new typography at the Bauhaus. Brodovich emigrated to the United States to escape the Nazis in the 1930s. In 1934, he became the art director at Harper's Bazaar. Brodovich was a fan of A.M. Cassandra and even encouraged him to spend two summers in New York in 1936 and 37. The result was a series of striking covers in the style of French Art Deco, emphasizing the musical feeling Brodovich sought to achieve in the flow of images and typography and in the artwork he selected from Cassandra, as well as from major talents like Salvador Dali and Man Ray. Brodovich's sensitivity to the balance of white space energized his editorial compositions. He intuitively understood and skillfully combined contrast, rhythm, and figure-ground relationships with crisp type and saturated colors. Other covers and interior spreads borrowed from avant-garde typography at the Bauhaus using clean typefaces and strong shapes. Brodovich was a genius with composition and scale. He'd play with montage and mixing typography and radically cropped photography. These were all ideas taken directly from the European avant-garde, yet tailored to an American audience. Unfortunately, magazines were printed in giant qualities, and offset printing didn't yet have the capabilities to maintain perfect color tones and small details. 
But Brodovich used this weakness to his advantage. He used black and white photography dynamically, not just laying out images after the fact. He changed the idea of what an art director was. He conceived ideas, the setting, and the look of the images. He was the mastermind behind all aspects of the layout. He also fostered the talents of many of the best photographers of the time, like Richard Avedon and Irving Penn. Brodovich moved the traditional magazine layout away from a centered, stodgy approach with small illustrations to asymmetrical, dynamic, and photographic solutions. Over time, his power as an art director increased, while the layouts became increasingly minimal. The change from a dense, text-filled magazine from the 1920s to a highly illustrative and energetic one profoundly changed the concept of a magazine. Many of the avant-garde designers who fled Europe in the 30s arrived here poor, desperate, and afraid, yet managed to contribute a wealth of talent and ideas. American designers were enriched and empowered to venture into unfamiliar territory in the field. Their novel experiments with a new array of visual tools marked decades of dramatic shifts in both content and aesthetics. Their focus was about to shift, though, yet again, as Hitler rose to power in Germany and World War II drew near. Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933. The Nazi party then began to eliminate all political opposition and consolidate their power with a campaign of violence and intimidation. They immediately began a mass media campaign to rule the German people. By 1934, the Nazi propaganda machine now controlled all communications from radio to posters. Joseph Goebbels was the head of the Nazi Ministry of Propaganda. He used films, books, and graphic design to communicate the Nazis' twisted set of values. Goebbels was one of Hitler's most devoted followers. He was extremely anti-Semitic and strongly supported the extermination of all European Jews. He commissioned work that spoke to ideas of anti-Semitism, Aryan racial purity, and the inherent superiority of Germans over the world. In its early years, the Nazi party adopted many of the modernist ideas, such as simple messaging, iconography, and strong forms and lines. However, as time passed, Nazi war posters turned to a more traditional and illustrative approach, which was what Hitler preferred. German citizens were forced to hang these posters in their homes to prove their loyalty to the party, while others were plastered around the city. The tools of propaganda have been consistent for centuries, but Nazis elevated propaganda to a new level by using mass communication to spread their terrible message. By the mid-1930s, most of the modernist designers had either fled to other countries or were imprisoned in concentration camps. This photo montage by Iwao Yamawaki depicts the Nazis' intolerance for the Bauhaus and its so-called degenerate ideas. German nationalist designers used sentimental and emotional scenes to manipulate the audience, just as designers during World War I had done. 
The typography was regulated to only using the official Germanic blackletter typefaces, a return to the typographic style popular in World War I. Nazi soldiers, Hitler youth, and German athletes were relentlessly portrayed as pure and Aryan. They are good-looking, white, Teutonic, and strong. Symbolism was a pervasive theme, and a calculated method for delivering the Nazi message to even the most uneducated viewer. Here, the halo of warm light behind the smiling blonde girl in this poster communicates the purity of a young woman. She holds a donation can for youth hostels and a spray of the German national flower, Edelweiss. In one of the most copied SS posters of all time, we see a stern young soldier, said to be based on the celebrated Knight's Cross recipient Clemens Baylor. He's viewed from below against a waving black SS flag, making him seem larger than life, grand and heroic. On this poster, a young Aryan boy looks to the future with the all-seeing Führer leading the way. Hitler was glorified in a godlike religious way in Nazi propaganda. Abstract and geometric shapes were replaced by these realistic yet highly idealized illustrations. A poster by Ludwig Hovain for an athletic event gives us an image of the perfect German woman, athletic, strong, vigorous, and tanned. She is an Aryan woman that represents victory, energy, and vitality, ideals that were valued by the Nazis. The message is problematic ethically, but compositionally it's a success. Holvein takes the color and shape of her shorts to echo the swastika. The form of her body echoes the shape of the flag, creating a very dynamic, forward-moving composition. Holvein was extremely prolific during this period, turning his talents once again to the emotional drama of war and patriotism. His distinctive style of high contrast imagery, flat planes of color, and heavy lettering combined with a talent for depicting Germans as shining figures of strength, health, and ability, which put Sackblakat once again at center stage. The primary idea in all propaganda is to characterize your side as heroic and the enemy as subhuman. If we see an enemy as an individual with feelings and a life, we might feel empathy. The Nazi posters used extreme and grotesque characterizations of racial minorities, Jews, Americans, and the British. Jews were often depicted as shady criminals or dirty and contaminated. In Behind Enemy Powers, the Jew, an overweight, heavy-browed Jewish man, pointedly displaying the Star of David at his waist, peers with apparent malice from behind three flags, the Soviet flag on one side, the American and British flags on the other, symbolizing the purported source of the powers behind German opposition. At the end of World War II, the Nazi regime faced defeat. Even then, Goebbels persisted in the faith that propaganda would lead to victory. This poster for Volkssturm, or the People's Militia, communicated the message that every German male between 13 and 60 should fight until dead. 
Across enemy lines, the Allied powers included Britain, the United States, the Soviet Union, China, and France, among others. In contrast to the Nazi messages of intimidation, fear, anti-Semitism, and racial purity, Britain and the United States utilized propaganda to promote unity, to mobilize the national spirit, appeal to patriotic duty, and to encourage hard work. In the same way that the message of the Axis powers evolved from a ruthless set of Nazi values, the Allied messages were reflected from a national set of ethics that valued freedom, liberty, and a democratic society. In January 1941, President Roosevelt articulated his vision for a post-war world founded on four basic human freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Norman Rockwell used these ideas as the basis of World War II's best example of Allied propaganda, the Four Freedoms. Initially, Rockwell had no idea how to tackle such large and broad ideas. Then he decided to tell the story from the point of view of his own hometown. Now, while these posters may seem traditional and representative, they incorporate many of the modernist concepts. Specific iconography strengthens the message. Perspective is skewed to create room for the elements. And each composition is full of symbolism. There are no parts of the poster that don't contribute to the message. In Freedom of Worship, dark-haired figures surround a family whose most prominent figure is a woman with a halo of braids desperately clutching a rosary, her upturned face glowing in a wash of white light. The message of hope and reliance on spiritual values to light the way is clearly represented. In freedom of speech, the blue-collar worker stands and speaks at a town meeting with the same rights as the white-collar executives next to him. Rockwell actually took this scene from his own experience at a local town meeting, where he was impressed by how respectfully the opposition listened to this one solitary dissenter. Freedom from Fear depicts the father holding a newspaper with wartime headlines, while his wife tucks their peacefully sleeping children safely in bed. Strewn toys suggest that the children were playing as usual, oblivious to the war, protected by the trusted presence of an attentive mother and a strong commanding father. The warm light of home is represented with a small vertical band on the far right, giving us a sense of hope for the future in a dark present. It communicates that people should feel secure in the strength and wisdom of wartime leadership to lead them into a peaceful and bright future. Freedom from want gives us the bounty of thanksgiving, not of food, but of family. The man in the front is looking directly at you, the viewer, as if you're included in the meal and part of the family. The shape of the couple serving echoes the shape of the turkey, and the food on the table represents the bounty of American agriculture. Other designers and illustrators focused on the value of work, such as J. Howard Miller's Rosie the Riveter, which served as a morale booster for the war effort in factories. 
Rosie's red, white, and blue attire reinforces the patriotic communication, while a bright yellow background provides a sense of hope and energy. Jean Carlu, originally from France, brought modernist and European avant-garde to his American work with simplified shapes and iconic imagery. His poster for America's Answer, Production, used less literal illustrations, taking a graphic approach to convey the message with symbols. The letter O does double service as a nut turned by a highly stylized wrench. Joseph Binder's Army Air Corps poster is a combination of simple geometry and patriotic colors, which highlight the energy of flight. The tiny airplanes pointing towards the American star is the key element here. The extreme contrast in scale between the larger wing and the small group of planes gives a sense of enormous height and distance, suggesting the mighty squadron of planes soaring high and fast to their destination. Charles Coyner's poster, Give It Your Best, is a direct and simple depiction of the American flag with a declarative command to the viewer. The powerful directive and simple message are similar to J. Montgomery Flagg's World War I pointing poster, I Want You. Though the composition is a modernist rectangular arrangement of the American flag. Now, while the flag is in reality a rectangular composition, this jarringly straightforward presentation of simple geometry was in stark contrast to the waving symbol of patriotism people were used to seeing. The heavy slab serif letter forms at the bottom lend weight to both the design and the message, with the italic leaning posture communicating a sense of urgency and motion. Optimism, teamwork, and challenge are exemplified in every Allied message. The War Department worked across media to convey these messages from radios to movies. Joe Rosenthal's famous photograph of Marines and Naval corpsmen raising the flag on Iwo Jima was quickly reused as a poster. Here in the War Bond Now All Together poster by C.C. Beale, which encouraged all the forces to work in unison. In April 1945, the Allied powers won the war. Hitler and Goebbels committed suicide and left a shattered nation to rebuild. The result of the Nazi purges of intellectuals and artists eliminated an entire generation of Germany's best minds and designers. In the U.S., however, the horrors of war gave way to a booming economy and an era of design triumphs that included brilliant advertising campaigns daring exploration of the boundaries of typography, and bold experiments with typography and abstract imagery. This concludes our study of American modernism in magazine and poster design, and the propaganda posters of World War II. Next week, we'll get into the international typographic style, and then the advertising giants of the New York School. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at mgridley at ut.edu or send me a text through WhatsApp at 813-436-3323.